Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, it's good to see some new faces. It's good to see some old faces. Uh, it's good to see some faces in the middle. So um, the, the weather's cool. It's nice. We finally got the October summer out of the way. I don't know about you, but it's, it's just my favorite time of the year. And, uh, and, and as Pastor Jeff said, there really is no better place to, to be this morning. I know that sounds sort of cliche perhaps, but when you just have the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's just good to be with God's people. It's good to, to shake hands and give hugs and say the prayers and be together and, and praise our Lord. Uh, it's, it's really a blessing, so I'm happy to see everybody. All right, so we are back in the book of Amos this morning, the book of Amos, and we will be going from chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, to the end of the chapter. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, that's the book of Amos. And that's Amos chapter 3. So that's just after Joel, just before Obadiah. Amos chapter 3. Um, and, 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 but before we begin, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Okay. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts... Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Only you can restore sight to the blind. Only you can set the prisoner free. Only you can preserve our souls and lead us in the everlasting way. And so we pray that you would apply this word to our hearts and lives this morning for our good and your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I am excited to be back in the book. Uh, as I said, we'll be doing verses 9, uh, it's chapter 3 to the end of the chapter. Um, and then next week, we'll, we'll pro- and, and, and for the time after in, in Amos, um, we will probably try and cover a, a chapter of a sermon. Um, and there are nine chapters in Amos. So, um, so, so next week, I'll preach again, and it'll be back on for Pastor Jeff. And, uh, and we'll probably do all of chapter 4 next week, okay? But for now, we'll go ahead and finish. I was going to include chapter 4 today, but it was just too much to get in there. And, uh, and so I just decided that we'd do the, just the end of the chapter today, okay? Let's read it together, all right? Starting in verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say... Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. 
Herein testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I will punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Okay, so what we've learned so far in our study of the book of Amos, if you recall from the beginning, is that, is that right now this is a time for Israel, this is a time of great economic prosperity in the northern kingdom. Now, why do I say northern kingdom? Well, if you remember your Old Testament history, you remember that eventually the kingdom that is united under Saul and David Uh, and remains united under Solomon, is divided in the time of King Jeroboam. Okay, The kingdom is divided into a northern kingdom, which is called Israel and consists of ten tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, which consists solely of the tribe of Judah. And if you remember the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and this division will last uh, until two separate exiles... Uh, an exile of the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century B.C., okay, to Assyria. And then in the 6th century B.C., or I always, always mix it up there, 5th century, 6th century, it was in 580, in the 580s, uh, for Babylon in the south. They will come, they will conquer Judah, okay? Um, and, and so right now, none of that's, none of that's here yet, okay? It's, these are good times, right? It's a time of peace and economic strength, a time in which Israel's territory has been expanded, okay? So they've broadened their territories a little. They've gotten a little more land, okay? Uh, the coffers have been filled. The, the money is, is coming in. All right, it's a bull market. It's a bull market. Nothing but blue skies. Nothing but blue skies do I see, okay? But Amos... The prophet has revealed that Israel's economic boon, that their good times, that their, that their golden season is about to end. He has revealed that the lifestyles of the rich and famous of Israel are, in fact, ill-gotten gains. They are ill-gotten gains. What, what do I mean by that? They, it is wealth that has been gained through the oppression of the common people of Israel. Okay, And if you remember uh, chapter 2, we talked about this. Yahweh prophesies through Amos, he prophesies against Israel. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, he says of Israel here, Okay, they sell the righteous for silver okay, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Okay, So their lust for wealth has given way to a callous regard for and sinful exploitation of the common people. Okay, such has become their lust for wealth and their lust for material possessions that they have become willing to exploit the common people, of which most people of this time were, okay, so that they might have more, okay, um, and, and, and Amos also showed us in chapter 2 how the elite in Israel have become flagrant and really, one might say, daring in, in their acts of, of profanity, okay, in their profane acts. Okay, in, in chapter 2, this time in verse 8, you remember he says, A man and his father go into the same girl, 
so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Okay? Their, their immorality has now reached such a, such a point, right, that, that it now extends to their sexual lives. It extends to their habits and practices of worship, right? And as if that isn't wicked enough, right, they are even willing to use uh, uh, the goods that they have exploited from the poor as, as means by which to do this, Right? So they're going to the altars, they're casting themselves down at these false altars. And, and what are they doing as they do this? They're drinking the wine of those they have exploited, right? It's, it's, a, it's a really a cruel thing. Imagine this, just to give some perspective here. If I were a banker or some government official, okay, and I used my position, my rank, okay, the, my, the power that I had to take from you money, right, that I then, you know, that, that's money you were, you were putting aside to pay your electric bill, to keep food on the table for your family, right? And I take that, and, and instead I use that money to indulge in a lascivious lifestyle, right? To go on a drunken bender in Vegas, or, or, or whatever the case may be. Or let's say I take that money and I give it to Planned Parenthood, Right? They, they get billions from the government, but I'm just, I'm just going to take the last $1,000 from your bank account, and I'm going to write a check, right? You can see what a cruel thing that the elite, that the powerful in Israel are doing to the poor. They're exploiting them. They're trampling them, okay? Yahweh, through Amos, through the, through the prophet Amos, has also revealed that Israel ultimately, ultimately has refused to hear the voice of the Lord, Okay? They have refused to hear the voice of the Lord. All right, And he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Yahweh says of Israel, You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. And what is he saying here? Right, The prophets have been sent by God to, to be God's mouthpiece. And when they get to Israel, right, the, the, the leaders... The religious elite, the political elite, they don't even let them get a word in. Shut up, right? Do not speak. We, we don't want to hear what you have to say, okay? We're doing just fine. Thank you very much. Please move on to Judah. Be on your way, right? They, they don't want to hear what the Lord would say through his prophets. So they shut up the prophets. And as if that isn't bad enough, they tell Nazarites, okay, these are men and women who would take solemn religious vows for a season of their life as as a sign of special devotion marked out to Yahweh. And they would say, you will drink wine. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, Nazarites, one of the things they were not permitted to do during their vows was consume wine, consume alcohol, right? So what, the, what the, elite, the elite have become so calloused and so wicked that they want to force these men and women to break their vows. This is the kind of, this is the, the, the level to which Israel's disregard for Yahweh has risen, okay? And that gives you a bit of a picture there, okay? So Israel's gone on its way, right? Times are good, looks good, you know, the, the economy is moving along strongly and we're doing well, not realizing that just over the horizon, just around the corner, 
judgment is waiting for them. Okay? And we get a glimpse, we get a glimpse of the moral blindness of Israel in verses 9 and 10. I'll read them again here. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria, excuse me, and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. And they do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So Yahweh is saying, hey, Egypt, all right? Hey, Ashdod, all right, I want y'all to get, I want, come, come here, come here, and I want y'all to, you stand there, and you stand there, and I want y'all to watch, and see, what do you see? What do you see? You're looking at Israel, and tell me what you see, right? I want y'all to bear witness against Israel. Now, this is an odd thing. This is an odd thing. Now, why? Because these two nations... All right, Ashdod, by the way, is a city in Philistia. Remember the Philistines? Remember Goliath? Goliath's always the first person I think of when I think of the Philistines. Um, Philistia, okay? It was, it was a kingdom composed of many kingdoms. Each city would have essentially its own king, and then they would be a single coalition under Philistia. And Ashdod was, was one of those. In fact, uh, do, you remember, do you remember, I think it's in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 5, 1 Samuel 5. You remember when uh, the Ark of the Covenant is taken in battle? Remember this? And, and it's, a, it's a kind of a, a little bit of a comical story. They take it back, the Philistines. Israel thinks it's power, it, it can't be defeated, but Ashdod takes the Ark and they set it up in the Temple of Dagon. Remember what happens? They set, this, they set, up, set, uh, set it before their idol. They come there the next day, the idol's fallen over. They're like, what in the world? They set it back up. They come there the next day, the idol's like broken. Its head has come off. And then, frighteningly, the people of Ashdod begin to get tumors. And they begin to perish. So much so that the people of Ashdod cry out to Israel and say, we got to get this thing out of here. Next day, air, FedEx, this thing has got to go because we are perishing here. Um, it is quite a story. And that's Ashdod. So just to jog your memory a little there and let you know who we're talking about here. And of course, Egypt needs no introduction, okay? You're familiar with the story of the Exodus. You're familiar even with the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, right? Uh, who was sold into slavery and ends up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt, right? Okay, so both of these kingdoms uh, figure prominently in the Old Testament, okay? The people of God in Egypt are enslaved there, remember, 430 years, right? Philistia uh, is a constant menace, a constant threat in the Old Testament. You read Judges, you read the account of Samson and his dealings with the Philistines. You read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. They are a prominent foe there, okay? And, and, and here's the thing. Both of these kingdoms, both of these kingdoms had reputations uh, for cunning, for strategy in battle, for their brutality in war. Okay, they were known, they were known to be brutal and oppressive regimes. They were powerful and they were not unintelligent. Both of these uh, both of these empires were known for their mathematics, for their uh, the Philistines were known for for being uh, mighty at sea. In fact, we believe that they were even may have been from the island of Crete in Greece and that they had came down uh, pretty early on to, to dwell in, in the land of Gaza. So both of these kingdoms, very smart, very cunning, very intelligent, very mighty, and yet God, time and time again, delivers his people, Israel, from these oppressive regimes in ways that you know. 
in ways that you have read, in ways that when you were a kid we put on felt board and, and flannel graph. You remember you've spent, you probably spent your life learning about God delivering Israel from the Philistines, uh, uh, David slaying the, slaying the mighty giant Goliath, the Philistine, God delivering Israel through the Exodus, through Moses with a mighty hand, dividing the sea, carving up the waters. These are, these are stories that, that even still, they, they warm your heart, they get you excited, right? So we're not, we're not a stranger to either one of these nations, okay? God had previously brought his judgment to bear on them, right? He had previously brought his judgment to bear on them, and, and he had taken the side of Israel against them. He had said, my, my lot is with my people, and I am against you, Egypt, I am against you, Ashdod. And now, now, so that kind of gives you a, a picture of what's being done here in Amos, of what, of what Amos is saying here. Right, Because now they will not be witnesses to Yahweh's power and his justice and his goodness and his righteousness. But rather, they will, be witness to, they will have witnesses against them for their lack of realizing God's justice and goodness and power and righteousness. Okay, And here's the thing. These nations, both... Um, both Philistia and, of course, Egypt, they lay to the south of Israel. And so what would naturally happen is if Assyria, when Assyria comes and invades the land, naturally these nations would be after Israel, right? Because you'd have to go through Israel to get to these guys first. And so they really would get to bear witness to the destruction that was coming to Israel. Okay, So this is a sad irony, it really is a sad irony because Israel was called, out of, uh, was called out of the nations to be a holy people, a people devoted to loving and worshiping Yahweh and being a light to all the nations. Okay, Israel was given victory in, in battle over the Philistines time and time again that they might know God and that they might serve him. Same with Egypt. The Ten Commandments, the, the, the Ten Plagues, the, the sea, the fire by night, the cloud by day, all of it. God had delivered them with a mighty hand that they might come out. Remember what he tells Pharaoh? They might come out and worship me. And now, now it's Israel's enemies okay, that are called upon to come and see what Israel has become. Okay? And here's the thing, Israel would have seen herself as morally superior to these nations, right? Again, their reputation in that time was known. So Israel would have said, these guys? It would have been an embarrassment. It would have been an insult. And the people listening to Amos would have probably been insulted by what he is saying here. Ashdod, Philistia, right? Philistia and then Egypt? They're going to be witnesses against us? It was an insult. It was, it was a powerful, powerful thing that Yahweh is saying here, okay? And I really want the, the force of that to land on you, okay? Because this is how far she has fallen, okay? Because even by international standards, she is guilty. Isn't that interesting? It isn't just by the internal stand, the, the kind of internal moral law within Israel that, that they look guilty. Even, even these brutal nations can look at Israel and say, wow, y'all have really messed up, right? There, again, there is a sad irony here, okay? And, it's a, and, and, and listen, it's a more evil thing for Israel than it is for Egypt and Philistia. Why? Why is that? 
Because Israel had been given the covenant, right? The promises, the law, okay? God's hand had gone out against her enemies and and delivered her in a mighty way. Yahweh did not call Egypt his firstborn son, did he? Did he? No, no. Did, did, Did God make a covenant with Ashdod? No. Did God set his special and particular love on Ashdod, on Philistia, on Egypt in the way that he did for Israel? Did he do it for any other nation? He didn't. He didn't, right? Yahweh did not call Egypt his firstborn. He did not call Ashdod his firstborn. But Israel, he called my elect, my son. Remember, he tells Pharaoh through Moses, you know, let my firstborn son go that he might worship me. He, called, he spoke to no other nation this way. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty one. 21. Remember when he's, he's giving his woes, he says, one of them, Woe to you, to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What's he saying? If they had seen, if, if, if Tyre and Sidon had seen what Bethsaida had seen, they would have long ago been on their knees. And maybe we can say the same of Ashdod in Egypt. If they, if they had been given what Israel had been given, they would have long ago been on their knees crying out to God. Okay, Jesus holds this city, Bethsaida and Chorazin, he holds them more responsible because they had been shown a greater light. Right? That's what he's saying here. You have been shown a greater light than what Tyre and Sidon had ever thought they would see. Remember James 3.1? James 3.1, it says this of teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Remember that text, right? Teachers will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Why is that? Because teachers have been shown a greater light, right? Their illumination into the oracles of God makes them more responsible to obey what they know. Right? They have been shown a greater light, and therefore they are held to a higher regard. Not just that, right? But the influential position of a teacher in the community of faith requires that they model the virtue of godliness to a higher degree, right? When you're a te- this is why we have standards, why Scripture gives standards for deacons and elders, right? Because people are watching. People are watching. And if you've been in a church before, or know of a church where uh, a, a layman falls into a grievous sin or apostat- you know, apostatizes, abandons, uh, abandons the faith, that's one thing. And it can, be, it can be terrible. But if a deacon or an elder does that, it can devastate a church, can it? It can devastate a church. Teachers, elders, deacons, office bearers, they're, held, they're given a greater light and they're held to a higher standard because people are watching. People are watching. And listen, people are watching Israel, right? Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. Israel was meant to model the fidelity and love and covenant faithfulness and righteousness of Yahweh, of the covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. This was, this was their role, to be a light to the nations. And therefore, they will be held to a higher standard. Okay? To whom much is given, much more will be required. Okay? Now, here's something to think about. How easy it can be, how easy it can be to criticize unbelieving neighbors, 
family members, co-workers, and a censorious or ungracious spirit. And yet, if they've been given the light that you've been given, okay, or that I have, have they tasted the sweetness of salvation? Have they passed from the darkness to the light? And do we as Christians, okay, do we as believers, as members of the covenant, as those who have received the gifts of grace, do we still sin even though we have known Jesus and received the Holy Spirit? We must remember, not just when we speak truth to the world, but especially when we speak truth to the world, that it is God who raises the dead to life. It is his work and he must do it, okay? So it is to us to pray and to be patient and to love and forgive those who do us a bad turn, okay? Because they have not yet been shown the light of the gospel of grace, and we should pray that they would, okay? Just something to think about. Israel seemed to have her act together. If you looked on the outside, maybe, you know? They're making offerings, they're sacrificing, they're keeping some laws. They certainly, they're doing well at this time in their history. Things seem to be going okay. But the edifice of superficial religiosity could not stand forever. It would not stand forever. They were like a bad tooth or a dead tree. No matter how things might have looked on the outside, the rot within would soon become the rot without. Okay, It would be seen. right? Look at verses 11 through 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall, shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Interesting turn of phrase, huh? So verse 11, I'm sure many of you would like to be rescued with a couch. You know, you're feeling faint, I come up behind you with a couch and just swoop you up. All right? We'll talk about it. Verse 11 is clear, is it not? It's clear. Yahweh will bring an adversary to bear upon the kingdom of Israel, and her walls will be breached, and her fortresses will be overrun, and this will be from his hand. Right? And here's the interesting thing. Assyria is, is, is not named in the book of Amos. And it's, but it's kind of like this ominous, like you don't say it. He whose name we shall not mention is kind of Assyria in the book. And so there is this kind of threat that goes unnamed, but everybody knows who we're talking about, right? Everybody knows who we're talking about. The great, the, 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 the kingdom that is, that is becoming more powerful and more eager to invade day by day. Assyria. Kind of the unnamed threat of the book. Okay, verse 11 is pretty clear. But what about verse 12? What, what does this refer to? Okay, I'll put it this way. In ancient times, if you were a shepherd, much of the time, the, uh, the, and, and usually, the, 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 the flock wasn't yours, right? It was, you, were, you were hired to tend the flock for, for a wealthy man, okay? So let's say you have a flock in your care, 50 sheep, right? And you're out on the pasture, you're out in the field, and a hungry lion comes up, right? And he wants one of your sheep, right? And so he, 
he goes for the sheep. Your other sheep, they, they, they get out of there, all right? Now, he's got a sheep, and, and you've got two legs, and you're trying to, you know, do what you can for this sheep, but you, all you do is pull back two legs, right? Well, let's say you go back to your master, and he's looking at the sheep, and he goes, hey, there's only 49 sheep here. Where's, my, where's number 50? You know, maybe he named them. Where's Spot or something? Or, you know, I really miss Spot. And you say, sorry, lion got him. That lion again, he's, he's out there. He's getting all the sheep. And what, what would you say then if he said, I, I don't think you're telling the truth here. I think you're lying. I think you, you secretly stole Spot and you want him for yourself. Or Spot got lost, okay? Spot hit the road and you don't know where Spot is and you're just lying about it saying this, this lion, right? What would you do? You'd pull out two legs, wouldn't you? You would, you would show two legs. You would say, no, look at this. Look at this. He, he was mauled. Here is the evidence. Here is the proof, right? And this is, what, this is really what shepherds would do at the time. They would, they would save a part of the animal to demonstrate so that they wouldn't be liable for restitution, right, to pay the price of the thing that had been taken. And they would say, look, here, two legs. That's all that's left. I didn't do it. I, you know, I'm innocent of this charge, and therefore they would be uh, they wouldn't be liable, okay? So, so what's being said here? Okay, Israel's judgment will be so total, so total, that when it's all said and done, there will only be a remnant, barely any, just legs, okay, left to show that they were even here, right? That they were even here. And then there's the part about the couch. That's interesting, right? That's interesting. He says, Let's see. We'll be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of the bed. There's, there's, there's an element of, of divine sarcasm here going on. Because he's saying, you know, because the words that are being used here actually refer to ornate furniture that was used in places like Damascus at the time. Okay, And what's being said here is all, the, all that's going to be left are, are, are these fancy beds that the wealthy and elite reclined on, that they rested on, that they ate grapes off of and pondered, you know, how large their bank accounts were. All that's going to be left is a headboard, okay? All that's going to be left is a scrap of furniture. That's how you're going to be saved. It's going to be total. The destruction will be total. And, and all that will be left is just a scrap to show that you were here. Remember the RMS Titanic that sank in April 2012? Of course, we all remember it now because of the movie. Uh, the ship itself, very ornate, right? Very ornate, expertly crafted furniture, fine china, ex- exquisite works of art. As it carried across the ocean, many persons of immense wealth, social prestige. Now, if you see footage of, 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 of small ships that have gone down to look at the wreckage, lying on the bottom of the Atlantic, you will find none of that original magnificence. That magnificence perished along with 1,500, 1500 of its passengers. And now only the barest elements of a ship remain to remind the world of what was lost. Okay? So total will the judgment be that it would be, it would be as if I took, if I could go down to where the Titanic rests, and I pulled up some piece of wood, and I came to you and I threw it before you, and I said, tell me what this is. You would say, this is a hunk of, this is garbage. 
right? You would have no idea that that came, once came from one of the most beautiful and elegant ships in the world. You would have no idea. You would just say, why have you brought this garbage before me, right? Why have you brought this? This is useless. It would be unrecognizable, right? The, the, the wealth that Israel has hoarded the, the, through ill-gotten means, that, they, that God's going to bring all of that to nothing. He's going to bring all of that to destruction. And when one of these headboards or one of the, a piece of furniture from the, the elite of Israel, when that is brought before someone later, they're going to say, what is this? I don't even recognize it. And someone's going to say, well, you'll never believe this, but this used to be in a palace in Israel, Right? That's how, that's how total God's judgment will be here. Look at verses 13 through 14. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Okay, this, this, this harkens back This harkens back to Jeroboam, who I talked about before. Remember when the kingdom is split, Jeroboam, all right, uh, uh, he's promised 10 of the, he's promised the 10 northern kingdoms if he will just do the right thing, if he will just serve the Lord. Uh, uh, The prophet tells him, Ahijah tells him that uh, God's going to bless you, God will make you prosperous. Just follow God's laws. Just do that. And God is going to give you 10 kingdoms. And he's only going to give, he's only going to leave Judah for the south, right? He's only going to leave Judah for the south, but you will have the 10 kingdoms, right? It will be well with you. It will be well with you. But Jeroboam messes up and this is where he does it. First Kings chapter 12, verse 25. I'll read it. Okay. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and he lived there, okay? And he went out from there and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, listen to what he said. Now, the, remember, the kingdom is split. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, okay, to Judah, right? Now why? Because if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn against, uh, will turn against me to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel. Okay, like we just read, he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. And he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people, listen, who were not among the Levites. Okay? And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast it was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. So he's just kind of making this up, all right? And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings, okay? So Jeroboam's told, follow my laws and I will make you, I will make you great. It will be, again, it will be well with you. But he starts thinking politically here. If the people are going to Ju- okay, the temples in Jerusalem, and we're in the north, and if they go there, okay, if they get their passport stamped and they go to Judah, 
right? And they make sacrifices there. Really, their hearts will be there. I mean, the temple's the center of worship. So he gets an idea. Hmm. I'll set stuff up here. And then they'll want to stay here, right? And their hearts won't depart from Israel to Judah, okay? So he starts thinking politically, right? Kind of a, a little bit of, uh, of a Machiavellian character here, right? He's thinking this out. And he's counseling with his men to, to see if this might work, okay? And he's going to set up his own feast days, and he's going to set up these calves, and he is going to arrest the heart and attention of the people of Israel, okay? Right? Even though Ahijah tells him in 1 Kings 11, hey, just follow God's law on this. Instead, he sets up these calves. And so that's what we're reading here. I will punish the altars of Bethel. That's what's being said here. Okay? We see in verse 14 of chapter 3 that Amos is going to, to, to punish the altars of Bethel and he's going to cut off the horns of the altar. What does this mean? Okay? The horns of the altar. Remember, two calves here, right? So he's going uh, he's, he's to he's cut off these horns. What is, that, what is he saying there? Okay? It's powerful language. This is what he, 1 Kings 1 49 through 51. I'll read it. Okay, this comes from 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose, and he went and took a hold of the horns of the altar. Okay, Get a picture of it in your mind. Then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. He grasped the horns of the altar. All right? Or how about 1 Kings 2.28? Here's another example. Uh, when the news came to Joab, all right, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. Okay? This was a place, the horns, when you went and you when you went into the tent of the Lord and you grabbed the horns of the altar, that was asylum. That was sanctuary. Okay, what you were saying is, white flag, I, you cannot touch me here, okay? I am, this is my asylum. I cannot be hurt here. It was an act of desperation. It was a last resort. It was a place where a person could look for that last bit of mercy they might need to just get out with their life, okay? And, but, but remember, it didn't always work. In fact, in that passage we just read in 1 Kings 2, Joab does not preserve his life there. Because he's, he's holding on to the horns of the altar and Solomon's outside with Benaniah. Um, and, and Benaniah says, hey, I called into him and he's not coming out. He says, you'll have to kill him in there. So you know what Solomon tells Benaniah to do? All right, what are you waiting on? Go kill him in there. And so he goes in and strikes down Joab as he's grasping the horns of the altar. Just so, just so. Israel will not have these horns to grab on the day of judgment. They will be cut off. There will be no horns to grab. Have you ever been standing and you reach for something that you thought was there and it's not there and you kind of get that mini heart attack that you get because you think you catches your breath or someone, I don't know if someone's ever been cruel and pulled a chair out from behind you. It's one of the scariest moments of your life. Okay, I recommend it. It'll wake you up. Uh, but you'll be standing there and you think something's there and you realize it's not, or you'll be going downstairs and you think you're hitting the next stair, but you're hitting the one after. And you, again, you have that kind of little mini heart attack uh, as, you're, as you're standing there because something you thought was there wasn't. And they think these horns will be there to provide sanctuary to them, but they will be sawn off. 
The Lord has had enough. They have oppressed the people. They have stomped on and spit on the people. And God is no longer going to have it. Even their last resort will not be there. Verse 15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So Yahweh will bring to nothing the riches of Israel's elite, those who have exploited the people, that they might live decadent and opulent lives. Okay, The common people of Israel are hurting because the powerful of the land have decided that when it gets a little too chilly, okay, when it gets to be about fall, all right, when it gets cold at night, that they should have another location to retire to during that season, and that the cost of such luxury should fall not on themselves, but on the poor. Now, now think about this. Off the script a little here. Think about this. Isn't it, and I thought about this as I was putting everything together here, and it really made me happy. And see if it warms your heart as well. Isn't it amazing that the God we serve gets mad about this? Isn't it? I mean, just think about that. He's not Zeus, right? He's not some angry deity who's all about strength and power, and you do what it takes, and I like, the, I like Achilles, and I like the man who is mighty, and forget the poor, they're just fodder. Is he that kind of God? Isn't it amazing that the, that the, the God we pray to, he hates that the poor are being oppressed, like he sees the, the, the outside religion, he sees the superficial acts of perfunctory religious service. And you know what? He kind of looks over their shoulders. They're kind of they're trying to, to buy him out. He's kind of looking over the shoulders of the priest. And he looks in the back, you know what he sees? He sees the poor being oppressed. Isn't it amazing that that's the God we serve? That he hates that? That he goes, hey, what about these people? You want to be close to my heart? How about how you're caring for them? How are you treating the people? I've given you those people, right? I I have set you over those people that you might reflect my character and my goodness and my love. And how, what are you reflecting? Okay, so as, as we draw to an end here, let's think about two things, okay? Two things, and then we're finished. One, it is always hard to imagine that the world's opulence and prestige will not last forever. Okay? You look around, you look around, and you see the great and the wealthy and the powerful and celebrities and CEOs and public intellectuals and feats of technological and, arch- and architectural prowess that, that stagger the imagination, right? You look around and you say, Man, what a time to be alive, right? What a time to be alive. This, is, this, this will always be. It will not last. It will not last. Things always, they, they always seem permanent when you're in them. They always seem like they're going to remain forever when you're among them. But they won't. The creation that has been subjected to futility, our bodies that grow weak and ill and diseased, the, listen, the evil acts of others that go unpunished in this life, okay? People who dismiss God and live prosperous lives, this is not the way it will always be. Remember, remember in, in Mark 13, the disciples are with Jesus and they say, hey, have you seen the temple, Jesus? 
Have you seen the gold? Have you seen the stones? Have you seen the temple? And he says, remember what he says? Hey, I, let me tell you this. Here, lean in. There, a time is coming, it's pretty soon, when, when that temple, there will be not one stone left on another. The thing you, you think will always be, it's coming to an end. And just so here, just so here, Israel could not see, they could not see that this, this beautiful kingdom they had, this time of economic prosperity and of greatness, and, and they thought they could hide from the Lord's sight what they had become and what they were doing. They thought that it would last forever, but a time was coming where it would be at an end. It would be over. And listen, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a believer, that's an encouragement to you. That's an encouragement to you because you look around and you see the creation that, as Paul said, is subjected to futility. And listen, beloved, it will not always be. In fact, not only will it not always be, but the time is soon coming, right? The time is soon coming, and it's, it's closer now than when I started this sermon. Israel thought that God didn't see, but he did. Israel thought that its time wouldn't be up, but it was. So, what else? The final thought here to think about. What can we think about? Okay. We are called by, by grace to model lives of gospel love and fidelity to the world. Okay? Even, and, and listen, it's the nature of sin. This is not your experience. This is not the, what, what, what you have found to be the case. It's the nature of sin that we are, we are so often unable to see it when it creeps up on us. Right? Even Egypt and Ashdod could see what Israel had become. Even these pagan, evil empires could see what Israel had become. Such is the clandestine nature of sin that it can overcome a person without the person even realizing that they are wearing chains. That they are wearing chains. It can creep into our lives. We give it more and more power. When we spend time out of prayer, for example, we spend time out of Scripture, when we, when we neglect the meeting together of God's people, is this not the case? Sneaks up on you, slips into your life. When we don't have genuine fellowship or friendships with other believers who can encourage us and, if necessary, rebuke us. Ask yourself this. In my life, or in a particular situation, am I Israel as, witness, as a witness to the nations, or am I Israel and the other nations witness against me? What is, the, what is the totality of my life as a believer? Or in a particular situation, what truth is that communicating to others? Are you the kind of believer and Christian who others look at and they say that they witness to God's glory? We look at their life and, and we see something, we, we see the, the work of grace, the work of the gospel in the life of that person. Or are they witnesses against you by the way that you react when something bad happens, by the way that you react when something doesn't go your way, perhaps? Are you witness to or are they witnesses against? It's a good question to ask. Like Israel, we as Christ's church are called to model lives that show the world, listen, that show the world that we love Jesus 
more than riches, more than comfortable lives, more than career aspirations. Listen, even more than our own lives. We are called to model Christ to the world as his people. Remember 1 Peter 2.12? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. On the day of visitation. So what's that mean? Even though they curse you or call you a bigot or sue you or cause you to lose your job or embarrass you or even throw you in jail, yet they will not be able to deny your works. Right? They will not be able to deny the kind of person you are. Right? When you care for the poor, when you are good to people who wrong you, when they see your joy, when they see the way that you, that you throw yourself on Christ, the way that you grow as a Christian, they will not be able to deny that. When we model lives that are the fruit of the gospel, we cause others to stop and wonder where such lives come from. Because listen, fruit, fruit has to grow somewhere, doesn't it? Right? Fruit has to grow somewhere. And we want others to look at our lives and say, I wonder where the fruit is coming from. I wonder where it's growing. And listen, we will fall in this way. We will fall in this way. Maybe next week. Okay? We will stumble. And, and this is what we want to show. Our God is able to bring restoration. And listen, often he uses such times not only to humble us, which we often need quite a bit of, okay? but he uses such times, listen, to show others the power of grace even in the life of a believer. Even in the life of a believer. Because the exile was not the end of the road for Israel. How do I know this? Because my Bible doesn't end at Amos. It, just, it, it, it keeps going. It keeps going after Amos. Long after the exile had ended and through many more centuries, when the fullness of time had fully come, God would bring forth his promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, so that through the seed of the woman and the people of promise, salvation would come to all peoples. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophet Amos. Thank you for what you reveal about yourself here, Father. Help us to be believers who model lives of gospel grace, who show the world, who show others, who show unbelievers that our treasure is not in any material possession or anything that can perish, Father, but it, that it is in your Son, that it is in the family of God, that it is in the things that are incorruptible and imperishable. We want to show the world that our treasure is Jesus. So help us to do that, Father. We thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.